0: All right, you guys can turn to Genesis chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning, Genesis 4. I don't know if you remember a name that was in the news about 20 years ago, early 1990s. There was a woman, a mom in the Houston area named Wanda Holloway. And this mom really desperately wanted her daughter to make the junior high cheerleading squad. But there was this other girl who was really, really good. And so Wanda did what any supportive, loving mom would do. She tried to hire a hitman. And the goal was to have the hitman kill the daughter and her mom so they would just completely be out of the picture. But she couldn't afford that, so she settled on just trying to kill the mom so the girl would be so crushed she couldn't compete. Now, you hear a story like that and you wonder how in the world... Can someone contemplate doing something so evil? That's crazy. That is unbelievable. You you ask yourself, if you're like me, when you hear a story like that, you ask yourself, I would never do something like that, would I? That's what we ask ourselves anytime we see something horrible in the news. So the shootings in Newtown, Connecticut, or at Fort Hood, or the 9-11 attacks. You see some horrific evil in the news, and it makes you ask yourself... Could I ever do something like that? We like to think we couldn't. We like to to tell ourselves, I would never do something as evil as that, right? Because that's what evil people do. I'm, I'm not part of that group, those really evil people. I'm part of the basically good people. We like to tell ourselves that. We like to think that way. We would never do something so evil because we are basically good. But is that true? Are we really above that kind of evil? Are we really that different from a Wanda Holloway or an Adam Lanza or an Osama bin Laden? Are we in a different class of people than them? They're the evil people, we're the good people. That's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna look at a question that's it's kind of a painful question to ask ourselves, but it's the question that our passage is designed to answer. I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you capable of incredible evil? Are you capable of something like murder or adultery, theft or assault? Are you capable of doing something that evil? Or is that only something bad people do and you're part of the the good people? That's what we're going to look at this morning by looking at the life of a man named Cain, who in our passage in Genesis 4 is going to do something brutally wicked, But before we get that, before we get there, as we look at the life of Cain, we need to go back, actually, to the passage last week. The story of Cain actually begins in chapter 3 with a promise, a gracious promise that God gave. We studied it last week. Chapter 3, verse 15. Look at that real quick. It's actually the second half of verse 15 that we want to look at. God says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We talked last week about how God is no longer speaking to the snake at this point in verse 15. He's talking to the being behind the snake, to Satan. And God is promising that there will come a male descendant of Eve who will crush Satan on the head, who will once and for all defeat the enemy of mankind and deliver humanity from the curse. Now Satan hears that promise and obviously he doesn't like it. This is not something that Satan likes. He doesn't really want to be crushed. He doesn't want to be defeated. And so at this moment, chapter 3, verse 15, Satan begins a war. that will occupy the rest of the Bible. The whole Bible is about this war between Satan and the descendants of Eve. Satan is going to do everything he can to kill or corrupt Eve's descendants so that none of them can, can stand up and crush him. Okay, so, so the war begins, and unfortunately for us, in the first battle of this war, Genesis chapter 4, it totally goes for Satan. He wins a huge victory over the seed of the woman, the descendants of the woman in chapter 4. He is going to corrupt an older brother, Cain, and use him to murder a younger brother, Abel. But before we get to murder, actually chapter four doesn't begin in a sad place. It does not begin with evil. It actually begins with great joy. Look with me at the first two verses of chapter four. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Chapter four begins with incredible joy. Eve gives birth to the first babies that have ever existed. Cain is the first human baby. Adam and Eve were created mature. Cain is the first baby, so when Eve had Cain in labor, she would have been in a lot of pain. But as soon as Cain is delivered, her pain is replaced by incredible joy. She celebrates in the naming of this child. She, she sees him as a gift that God has given her. I remember when our kids were born, Luke and Gracie, it was very painful to be in labor with them, and of course I'm not speaking of myself, it wasn't painful for me at all, but for my wife, for Julie, it was incredibly painful, carrying around two kids for, for, she made eight months with those, I mean it's painful enough with one kid, she had two in there, and yet the moment that we heard our kids cry for the first time, that, that all that pain was forgotten. It was replaced by incredible, intense joy that these new lives had come into existence. That's how Eve feels as Cain is born. She rejoices over this boy. And in naming this boy, what we can tell is that what she hoped is that this would be that boy that God promised back in chapter three who would crush Satan and deliver the human race from the curse So she is joyous when Cain is born, and then her joy increases even more when she has another son, Abel. Now she has two boys, two chances to defeat Satan and deliver the human race. So the chapter begins with joy. Now we don't know anything more about the the upbringing of these two boys other than their professions. We know that Cain chose to follow in the footsteps of his father. He became a farmer, a tiller of the ground. Abel chose to raise flocks of sheep. Both of those professions are good. Both are honorable. They both provide food and and everything that a family would need. And most importantly, both give you something with which to worship God. And that's where our story goes next. Both brothers bring from, from their professions something to give to God in worship. So look at verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And we'll pause there. So, having seen this joyous blessing of two sons with two occupations, they give two offerings of worship to God. Apparently, God had instructed them, this is what worship looks like. This is how and when you bring an offering. Both sons bring an offering, and that's what we want to see really clearly. At this point in our story, there is no hint of immorality or idolatry or violence in Cain to all outward appearances, the man looks great. Here he is bringing worship to God. He believes in God. He brings an offering to God. So at the beginning of our story, it's not like Abel is living over here in the good tribe and Cain is living over here in the wicked tribe. No, they're both part of the same family. They're both worshiping the same God. So our story begins on a high note, and that forces us to ask ourselves, we, we know where this story goes. So the question is, how does Cain go from such a great beginning to such a horrible end? In just eight verses, actually, very short amount of time, Cain will go from a joyous, worshipful beginning all the way down to homicide. How does he get there? That's what we're going to study this morning, the progression of sin in Cain's life. And what's fascinating is his sin did not begin with something huge like murder. His sin began really small. His sin began on the inside with a belief. Cain did not believe in the goodness of God. Cain doubted that God was good. Look with me where where Moses goes next in the account. Verse four, Abel on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Why? Well, Moses doesn't tell us explicitly, but he gives us a hint in how he describes these two offerings. Look closely. The offering that Cain brings, Moses says it is simply an offering. It's just some part of the produce that he has harvested. Just something that he gives to God. But notice how he describes Abel's offering. He said that Abel brings of the firstlings of his flock. So that would be the the firstborn of of his flock of sheep. That would be the oldest, strongest, best animals he brings to God. And he gives, notice it says, the fat portions. Now, if you put in front of me a really fatty piece of meat, I'm not going to want to eat it. Because in our modern society, we favor lean cuts of meat. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. In the ancient world, they liked, they craved the fatty parts of the meat because that had more flavor. And more importantly, that's what packed on pounds. And In the ancient world, that's how you survived. So the fat portions of the animal were the really valuable portions. In other words, what Moses is telling us is that Abel gave extravagantly to God. He gave the best. He gave well above what he had to. Cain did not give extravagantly. Cain just gave the minimum, an offering, just a little bit, the minimum that he could squeak by with. Now, why? Why does Abel give extravagantly and Cain does not? Moses doesn't tell us. Moses doesn't go into their heads and tell us what's going on. Fortunately, tens of thousands of years later, after Cain and Abel, we find out in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tells us what was going on in these two men. Hebrews eleven four, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So Abel's offering was acceptable to God because it was offered in faith. In belief. Now, belief in what? Well, a couple verses later, Hebrews 11 tells us, in Hebrews 11:6, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Two things listed there that you must believe to please God. Number one, you got to believe that he exists. Now, both brothers believed that. Both brothers actually talked to God. So, so Cain knew that God existed. That's not what set him apart. It's the second thing you got to believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, to be acceptable to God, to be pleasing to God, you must believe that God is good, that God will will reward you, that he will care for you, that he will be extravagant towards you. That's what Abel believed. He believed that God had been so extravagantly good to him that he could afford to give extravagantly to God. Abel could give the best that he had because he believed, well, God's not going to be any man's debtor. God will take care of me richly. He will provide for me because he is good. Belief in the goodness of God motivated Abel to give richly. But Cain didn't believe in the goodness of God. To Cain, God was stingy. God held back what was best. And so Cain held back what was best. Cain believed he had to take care of himself. He had to watch over his own life. He couldn't trust God to richly take care of him so he could not give up what was best. Believing that God is not good is the foundation of all sin. That's what ultimately will lead Cain down to homicide. It did not begin with murder. It began with doubt began with the belief that God is not good, that I cannot trust him to richly take care of me. If I do not believe in the goodness of God, if I do not trust God to take care of me, if I believe he's holding out on me, if I believe he doesn't care about me, that belief will excuse all kinds of sin. If I don't believe in the goodness of God, that becomes an easy excuse for every sin you can imagine. If I don't believe that God will take care of me financially, If I don't believe that he will be good to me financially, that will excuse overworking, lying, cheating, stealing, anything I have to do to get the money that I deserve. If I don't believe that God has been good to me in my marriage, in the spouse that he's given me, well, that belief will excuse looking outside of marriage for the happiness that I should have that God is holding out on me. If I don't believe that God is being good to me relationally, hasn't given me the friends I deserve and the fun that I deserve, well, that belief will excuse any party, any activity, any dating relationship, whatever I have to do to have the life that I deserve. If I don't trust in the goodness of God, if I don't believe he's good, if I think he's holding out on me, if I think he doesn't care about me, that becomes an excuse for all manner of sin. That's where it begins. That's step number one. So God doesn't accept Cain's offering because it was not offered in the belief that God is good. Now somehow Cain knew that. As soon as he'd given the offering, Cain knows that God is not pleased with that. God reveals it somehow. We call that conviction. God convicts Cain. He shows Cain this is not okay. Okay. Cain, you've got to work on, on this disbelief. God shines a light on Cain's sin. He convicts Cain, and that conviction gives Cain a choice. Now Cain faces a decision. How will he respond to God's conviction? Will he turn things around? Will he return to God in faith and bring a new offering? If he does, if he did that, then this story would be short and happy. But it's not short and happy because Cain does not respond well to God's conviction. He moves on to step two. In the progression of sin, he allows doubt over God's goodness to become anger and self pity. He indulges anger and self pity. Look again at verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. Literally in Hebrew, he became very hot in the face. And his countenance fell. His his face fell. He became depressed and and he was filled with self-pity. So Cain had an opportunity to respond to God's conviction. Instead of doing that, he takes no responsibility for his lack of faith. Instead, he chooses to blame God. He gets angry at God. He believes that he is the victim and God is the victimizer and that makes him furious at God. And so he allows anger and self-pity to begin to fill him. Now God sees that. God sees that Cain is beginning to fall to anger and self-pity. And so God shows up and he speaks to Cain, a word of encouragement and a word of warning. Look with me at the next verse. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God begins with encouragement. Cain, why are you angry? What God is asking is, Cain, why do you think you need to be angry here? Bro, you can turn it around. Don't you understand? If you turn from your anger, if you choose to believe that I'm good and bring a good offering to me, Cain, I will accept it. In other words, God is telling Cain, Cain, I don't love Abel more than you. I don't favor Abel more than you. If you will simply do what is right, like he has done what is right, you will have the same reward, the same happiness that he has. So it begins with encouragement, and then God moves to warning. He warns Cain, Cain. If you don't get control of this sin that's growing in you, it's moved from doubt, now it's turning to anger and self-pity. If you don't turn from this sin, Cain is going to own you. And God gives us one of the most insightful pictures of what sin looks like, that sin nature that is alive within us. He describes it as a, basically a crouching lion is the idea, a lion crouching at your door. You don't see it. You don't know when it's going to pounce. You just know at some point it's going to jump on you and kill you. The point God is making is, saying, is Cain, you either got to kill sin or sin will kill you. And there's a really important lesson for us here. What God is saying to Cain and what he wants to say to us is once and for all, there are no pet sins in life. No such thing as a pet sin. Because sin isn't a pet. Sin is a wild animal that wants to eat you. It wants to destroy your life. So there is no such thing as a small sin. There's no such thing as a minor amount of sin that you can live with in your life. There is not a little bit of lust. There is not a little bit of selfishness. There is not a little bit of pride. There's no such thing as a little sin because all sin is a wild animal that wants to destroy you. If you give into it while it feels little, it will own you. You either kill it or it kills you. You cannot keep a pet of sin. It will destroy you. That's what God warns Cain. And now Cain faces a second chance. A second opportunity to turn things around, to repent, to turn from his doubt and his anger and return to God in belief and in gratitude and give a good offering. So Cain has an opportunity. It's not too late. He's not killed his brother yet. Everything could turn around if Cain will just listen and respond to God. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He continues to move forward, and we move on to step number three of his progression into sin. Cain commits great evil. He murders his brother. Verse eight, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Killed him in Hebrew. It speaks of of intentional murder. This is what we would call murder in the first degree. It's not manslaughter. Cain plans this out. He decides he is going to slaughter his brother. And what should stand out to us is how fast, how quickly human beings learn sin. Because think about what quick learners we are. What were we doing in chapter 3? We were eating a forbidden piece of fruit. What are we doing in chapter 4? We're killing each other. Throughout the book of Genesis, sin is on steroids. It grows at a shocking rate in people's lives. And so this sin, this brutality, this violence comes out in Cain. Why? Why does he murder his brother? Well, ultimately, it's because of his anger at God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was studying this passage and made an insightful discovery. He said, yes, why does Cain commit murder? Ultimately, out of hatred for God. It's not about Abel. Yeah, Cain feels some jealousy, some envy towards Abel. But ultimately, it's about hatred towards God. God had convicted Cain. God had favored Abel because Abel was righteous and that made Cain furious at God and that anger spilled over in wrath against Abel. Cain's murder of Abel was ultimately about his anger towards God. That's ultimately kind of how it always works. When we sin, even if we're sinning against one another, ultimately it's always about sinning against God. It's about our doubt towards him, our disbelief, our anger towards him. David saw that David is another really good example to look at as we think about the progression of sin think about King David good man until towards the end of his life he commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba when she gets pregnant he has her husband Uriah murdered and then God sends a prophet who convicts David David falls on his knees and he says this in Psalm 51 against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight he's talking to God Against you, God, you are the only one that I've sinned against. Now, how can he say that? He slept with Uriah's wife and then had him murdered. So how can he say that the sin is only against God? Because David recognizes sin ultimately is always towards God. What happened in David's life? Well, David one evening was up on the roof of his palace and he looked around and he saw an attractive woman naked bathing on the top of her roof. And he said, I want that. And God said, no. No. No, because she belongs to another man. And at this point in your life, David, you already have six wives. That's more than enough. You do not need another one. So God said no. But David didn't like that answer. Instead of focusing on all the good things God had done, remember, where is he standing when he sees Bathsheba? On his palace. The guy lives in a palace. He controls a country. He's got wives. He's got everything he could want. But he focuses on the one thing God says no to. He forgets everything good. He chooses to believe that God is holding out on him, that he deserves to have that thing that he wants. And that doubt of God's goodness, that anger towards God, ends up justifying adultery and murder. That's how it works. When we don't resolve our doubts, when we don't resolve our anger towards God and our self-pity towards ourselves, if we let those things grow and fester, they will become an excuse for all manner of sin. Things as horrible as murder, adultery, all of that ultimately flows from doubt, anger, and self-pity. So now Cain has gone all the way down the path. He has murdered his brother, but it doesn't end here. Unfortunately for Cain, his sin continues to progress. He moves on to step number four in the progression of sin. He denies responsibility for it. Look with me at verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So God shows up and and rather than just crush Cain, which is what Cain deserved, God invites repentance. Still, God is giving grace. He asks the question, "Where, where is Abel? Uh, Cain throws the door shut on repentance by giving a lie and a flippant response. I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? He will take no responsibility for what he's done. Absolutely no responsibility at all. Cain is not responsive to God at all. He is not willing to repent. He is not willing to own up to his sins. It is shocking when you look at Cain, how far he has fallen into sin. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God showed up, at least they felt guilty. At least they felt ashamed enough to go hide from God, not Cain. He doesn't feel any guilt. He doesn't feel any shame. He is not willing to take any responsibility for what he's done. And so God speaks judgment against him. Look at verse 10. He said, that is, God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. God doesn't kill Cain on the spot like he deserves. Instead, God levels a curse against him. So Cain becomes the first human being who is cursed. Adam and Eve, things around them were cursed. Cain is cursed just like the snake back in chapter 3. He will now be banned from the promised land. He's banned. Cain hears this curse and it finally gets his attention. It's the first time Cain wakes up and sees what's going on. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain feels regret, but notice it's not regret about his sin. He's not sorry about his sin at all. What is he sorry about? his punishment. That's not repentance. That's not what it means to repent. Cain simply feels sorry for himself. He doesn't feel sorry for Abel, who's dead. He doesn't feel sorry for his parents who have lost a son. He just feels pity for himself because of the punishment God has put upon him. He begins to feel fear. He is afraid that someone will kill him. Now, who is someone at this point in human history? It's his own family. That's the only people living on the earth. Cain is afraid that what he has done to Abel will be done to him in vengeance. So he is terrified of the punishment of God and shockingly, look how God responds to Cain's fear. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. It's shocking to see the grace of God in this passage. Here is an unrepentant murderer. He just killed his brother and he's not sorry about it at all. What does God do? He gives him grace. He gives him divine protection. Some mark. I don't know what it was. I just know it was effective. Cain was not killed. God's protection worked. God blesses this unrepentant murderer and sends him out from the land. And so that leads us to ask, okay, what happens to Cain after God sends him away? That's where the story picks up in verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So what happens to Cain after God curses him? He prospers. Cain prospered. He, he didn't end up being a wanderer. No, the dude built a settlement, had a family. He takes a sister as a wife. They have children. He builds a city. He was blessed financially and materially, but he was not blessed spiritually because to the end of his days, Cain continues down this path of sin. That's the fifth step in the progression. With the end of his life, Cain creates a legacy of sin. This city that he builds It becomes a a pinnacle, a center on earth for a couple things. First thing, look with me, starting in verse 19. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. Lamech is six lines down from Cain. And so as you look at the progression of his line, in the city that he builds, he has descendants who become the fathers of economics and art and technology. The city that Cain built, it becomes the center on earth of human achievement. Now, none of those things are bad. Economics and art and technology, they're neither good nor bad, but here's the thing to notice, contrary to what our world expects, advancements in in economics and art and technology are not the measure of a health of a society. Because notice what Moses says immediately after these great human achievements, verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. So this same city that Cain builds that becomes the center on earth of human achievement also becomes the center on earth of violence, of wickedness. Lamech, the great, 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 great grandson of Cain, he takes Cain's level of evil and raises it. Even if a boy insults me, I will kill him. I will murder him. He wears brutality like a badge of honor. He's proud of his wickedness. He has no need of God to protect him. He doesn't need a mark on his forehead. He is strong enough, violent enough, brutal enough to take command of his destiny. You see the end of Cain's sin. Not only did it breed sin in his life, but it bred even greater evil in the lives of his descendants. So chapter 4 is a pretty shocking victory for Satan. It's really, really sad news when we look at what has happened in Cain's life. Satan has won an incredible victory. One son is dead. The other is corrupted, completely corrupted by Satan. So completely that John tells us in 1 John 3, 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. What does it mean to be of the evil one, of Satan? What it means is that Cain chose to obey Satan. Satan. He chose to become an agent of the evil one in the destruction of the human race. You recognize how how tragic this is. What did his mom hope for him when he was born? Maybe this will be the boy who will defeat Satan once and for all and deliver us from the curse. Instead, he ends up becoming an agent in the hands of Satan and brings even greater curse upon humanity. That is what sin will do to you. Sin will make you an of the evil one, an agent in the plan of Satan to destroy the human race. Really sad story when we look at Cain. So I want to draw some conclusions. I want us to learn some lessons so that we don't walk down his path, so that we don't share his fate. So as the men head back to prepare communion, let me share with you three lessons that we should walk away from this story with three lessons that we should apply to our lives that we learn from Cain. Lesson number one, the power of sin. Power of sin. We need to understand, we need to recognize Cain is not that different from us. Cain was not part of some other class of humanity, the bad people. We're part of the good people. No, Cain was was just like us. A man who who struggled to believe in the goodness of God, a man who struggled with self-pity and anger, just like many of us do from time to time. Cain murdered his brother not because he was more evil than us, but because he did not halt the progression of sin in his life. That is where sin will take you if you do not halt the progression of sin in your life. You can go down that same path. So murder and adultery Theft and assault. We are the kind of people who can do that kind of stuff. Yes, we can. If we choose to walk in sin, if we choose not to deal with our doubts, not to deal with our anger, not to deal with our self pity, we can walk down the path towards shocking levels of sin. If you want proof for that, look no further than King David. Remember, what did God say about King David? You are a man after my own heart. Here is a believer, a child of God, an incredible servant of God who chose not to deal with his doubts, who chose to nurse ingratitude and anger against God and became an adulterer and a murderer. We can share that same fate if we don't deal with our sin. If we don't halt the progression of it and deal with it while it's just doubt, while it's just anger, you gotta deal with your sin. Sin is incredibly powerful. There is no amount you can live with You must kill it or it will kill you. That leads us to the second lesson. If we can walk down the same path of Cain, then it's incumbent that we ask ourselves, how do we stop that? How do we keep from making the same mistakes that Cain did? That leads us to the second lesson, the importance of faith and a soft heart. You don't have to follow Cain's path. Not because you're a different kind of person, but because you can get off the train of sin at any time through faith and a soft heart. We need faith. Why did Cain begin this this path of sin? Because he chose not to believe in the goodness of God. You need to believe. You need to believe that God is good to you, that God has been better to you than you could possibly have expected. That belief in the goodness of God will protect you from sin and from temptation. But how do you grow that faith? What do you do if you're struggling with doubt? If you feel like God is holding out on you and not good to you, you practice the discipline of gratitude. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Gratitude isn't a feeling, it's a discipline. When temptation comes knocking, when you feel yourself drawn towards sin, gratitude is that you stop and force yourself to to think of 10 things that are good in your life. 10 things good that God has done for you that will protect you from the power of temptation by growing your belief in the goodness of God. We need faith if we're going to resist the path of Cain. Second thing we need is a soft heart. You realize when Cain struggled, even when he fell to doubts, even when he fell to anger and self-pity, still there was hope. He could have turned it around at any moment if he just would have had a soft soft heart. A soft heart is a, a heart that responds to God's conviction. When you know you've done something wrong, when God convicts you through his word or his people or his spirit, you respond by saying, yes, God, you are right. I confess that is wrong. Please help me to turn from that. That's a soft heart. Cain had a hard heart. When a hard heart is convicted, you deny it. You make excuses for your sin. You blame other people for your sin. That's what a hard heart does. If you give in to a hard heart, if you choose to have a hard heart, there is no limit to the sin that you will eventually excuse. Choose to have a soft heart. When God calls, when you feel convicted, please respond to that conviction. Get on your knees and confess. That will keep you from sharing the fate of Cain. So, power of sin is the first lesson we learn. The second is the importance of faith and a soft heart if we want to avoid his example. Third lesson, the only part of this sermon I was looking forward to preaching because all of this is really bad news. It's been a really depressing week to put this sermon together. But the last part of it, Even in such a tragically awful, evil chapter of the Bible, there is good news here. Because the third thing that you see in Cain's story is the extravagance of God's grace. Even here, in such a dark night of human history, God shows up in grace. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth, it means granted, a gift. God, in, as, as a gift, as grace, he begins to restore the human race. He begins to recover us from the sin that Cain has chosen. So he, bring, he provides another son. He provides Seth. And it's at this time that humanity begins to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth's lineage, his legacy will not be like Cain's. From Seth will come two great deliverers. The first is at the end of chapter five. We'll meet him next week. It's Noah. Noah. Noah will deliver the human race at a key moment in our history. But as great as Noah was, he is not the promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3. That was left for somebody else. Seth's greatest descendant, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who would finally crush the head of Satan and deliver us from the curse. It's interesting when you look at chapter 4. I want you to look again at verse 14. Look at what Cain feared. Here's what Cain feared would come upon him because of his sin. He says, behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. You recognize that stuff didn't come true for Cain. No, the dude went out and built a city. He lived in prosperity and security and strength. He was not killed. Who suffered what Cain feared in verse 14? Jesus, Everything that Cain feared fell on Jesus. Jesus was a wanderer, not Cain, Jesus. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, he was found and killed. They found him in the Garden of Gethsemane and killed him on the cross. Jesus, he was the one from whom the father turned his face. Jesus was the one who yelled as he died, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cain didn't say that, Jesus did. Everything that Cain feared fell on Jesus. Jesus. He took the curse of Cain. Cain was a murderer. He was unrepentant. He deserved the wrath of God. Jesus took it instead. And he did the same for you and I. Jesus took the curse of our sin. As Paul says in Galatians 3, he became a curse for you to deliver you from your sin to give you forgiveness, to make eternal life possible. You, a sinner, can live with the holy God for all eternity because Jesus willingly chose to become a curse in your place. Forgiveness in eternal life, it's not something you earn from God. It's not something you merit from God. Jesus earned it for you by dying in your place on the cross, and now he gives it to you as an absolutely free gift. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning in communion we get to celebrate the fact that God does not hold us accountable for our sin. He does not curse us for our sin because his son took that curse for us. So as the men come forward to pass the elements of communion, I want you to take this time as the elements pass. Communion is a celebration. It's our moment to express gratitude to God, for what he has done for us through Jesus. I want you to take these moments as the elements pass and I want you to go before God and say thank you. Express your gratefulness to God that he sent his own son to suffer and die, to be tortured and to to be humiliated up on the cross in your place so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. Spend this time in gratefulness as the elements pass. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we deserve to be wanderers. We deserve to be killed for our sin. We deserve to be cursed. How we thank you and praise you That rather than giving us what we deserved, instead you have given us your son. That he willingly chose to become a curse for us. He never sinned. He deserved blessing and reward and righteousness. And yet he chose to go to the cross in our place. To take our punishment for us. Thank you for the gift of your son. Who has freed us from the penalty of sin. Who is now freeing us from the power of sin. And who will one day free us even from the presence of sin rejoice and thank you for him. We pray that we would live lives worthy of him, that we would learn to turn from sin early, that we would instead run to you in faith and in gratitude. I pray, Father, protect us from the path that Cain walked down. Help us to have soft hearts that respond to your conviction and walk with you in faith. In the name of your son, for his glory we If you'll stand, let us respond and worship.